Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Nana Dakoa Sekiyama. Nana is the author of The Sex Lies of African Women, which publishes weekly described as an astounding report on the quest for sexual liberation in their starred review. It was also listed by The Economist as a best book of the year. She's also co-founder of Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women, a website, podcast, and festival that publishes and creates content that tells stories of African women's experiences around sex, sexualities, and pleasure. Nana is also a communication strategist who has over 15 years of experience of developing and delivering strategic communication programs across media, public sector, and non-governmental organizations. She's got a deep understanding of digital technologies for feminist activism and is widely recognized as a key African feminist working at the intersections of gender, sexualities, and technologies. The impact of Nana's work has been documented by CNN in a film titled Not Yet Satisfied. Nana's opinion editorials and articles have been published by The Guardian, Open Democracy, and Essence. She's contributed to anthologies such as Feminist Parenting, Perspectives from Africa and Beyond, as well as the Rutledge Handbook of Queer African Studies. Her short stories have been published in It Wasn't Exactly Love and The Pot and Other Stories. In 2016, she won a prestigious Hedgebrook Fellowship. Nana is a sought-after facilitator, speaker, and commentator. She's been a guest on several international media programs, including being interviewed by Christiane Amanapur from CNN, The Forum, and National Public Radio. She's got a BSc in Communications and Cultural Studies from the University of North London, now London Metropolitan University, and an MSc in Gender and Development from the London School of Economics and Political Science. She's also a trained performance coach and leadership trainer. Nana lives in Accra, Ghana, with her daughter, Asantewa, who is two years and four months old. So today I'm absolutely privileged to be talking to Nana about feminist parenting, her writing on sex and pleasure, and the sex lives of African women. Welcome, Nana. Thank you so much, Jan. I'm delighted to be chatting to you. Oh, I'm so excited. So let's start with your amazing book, The Sex Lives of African Women, an incredible collection of writing that explores sexuality from what feels like every possible angle. Tell me about the creation of this book and how your interviews in 2014 became this collection today. Yeah, so some people may know that for well over a decade now, um, myself and one of my best friends, Malaki Koran, started this blog, Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. And we would encourage women to share their stories around sex and sexualities and relationships. And at some point in time, I just felt like, oh, my gosh, we have all of these super interesting stories about, you know, how how African women navigate sexual relationships. But I never see these stories out in the world, particularly in Western media. I felt like the portrayal of African women were... It was usually very limited, you know, it was one-sided. It was like we were victims of FGM or... We didn't have access to sanitary towels or we were in miserable, you know, um, polygamous marriages. And I just felt like that wasn't the whole truth. And the real picture was way more interesting and way more varied and complex. 
And then I just kind of had this aha idea, you know, that how to show the world that the stories are way more interesting than they tend to show is by interviewing an African woman from each country on the continent. That was my initial, clearly unrealistic, overly ambitious goal, you know, and I quickly came to my senses and just decided to interview as many women as I could. And I used to travel a lot for my job. Um, sometimes I used to travel like every two weeks and that would be in lots of different countries all around the world. And so I just thought, yeah, let me just interview African women wherever I find them and put all of those experiences in one book. And that's how The Six Lives of African Women came into being. Well, it sounds like if you're going to do every country that there's room definitely for The Six Lives Part 2, Part 3, Part 4. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we'd all be keen to read them. I know people have been asking, but no, I don't plan to do a part two. I'm so ready to start on my next book. Um, and yes, it, it will still be about sex, but it will not be part two to the sex lives of African women. I'm happy for other people to do those. <laughs> I suppose there's always people interested in pleasure. So hopefully there is a, a follow up from somebody else. Hopefully you've inspired someone. I wanted yes. to ask you, um, in terms of we're talking about feminism, this is a feminist podcast, we're both feminists. Do you think all of the pieces in your collection are explicitly feminist or do you think that the act of talking about pleasure, about sex, even when it's difficult, is in itself a feminist act? Absolutely. I think the act of creating space to have conversations about sex, sexuality and perspectives, especially when you look at it from a perspective that includes as many viewpoints as possible, especially people who are the least marginalized amongst us, that is what is feminist, right? Because they're trying to change the system that says sex should only be done in a particular way within particular relationship structures and everything else is illegitimate. I think that's what's feminist as opposed to the mere conversation about sex. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, and, you know, it's an incredible book. I loved reading it and it's done fantastically well and garnered high praise from all of the right places. What has this journey been like? Did you expect for it to be so successful? And tell us more about your second book that you're writing now. It's an interesting question, right? And Jen, you're an author. So I, I, I would also love to hear your thoughts on, on, on it. But I think when you're writing, you're kind of just wanting to get the book done, you know? <laughs> And you don't really thinking, at least I wasn't thinking about how it would be received in the world. I knew that I wanted it to have a good publisher. That was the thing that was really important to me, right? Because I had the sense that if I had a good publisher, then they would make sure that it would get in all of the places that it needed to get to. And I think I've been really lucky with my publishers. I have a UK publisher and a US publisher, and soon it will be translated into Italian. And I feel like my publishers, you know, were really... Um, they really got the book from the very beginning and maybe that person not even maybe before my publishers even got the book the person who got the book was my agent if i didn't have an agent who was committed to selling this book who believed they could sell this book i wouldn't have been able to sell the book and if i didn't have a publisher who basically had models where they could distribute across the world it wouldn't be everywhere so the first publisher we sold to was dialogue books in the uk and for me the only concern i had was how are you going to ensure that this book gets into like African countries, because I wrote this book for African women, right? And my one concern with going with a UK publisher was, will the people I wrote the book for be able to receive it? That was the only like marketing and sales conversation I wanted to be part of. And so we had a big meeting about it and, and they told me the plan and I've been happy. 
you know i feel like most um most of the major markets across the continent have the book even when independent booksellers reach out to me i'm able to put them in touch with my publisher and they work really hard to ensure that people get the book even countries where to be honest they had been reluctant to send the book because they were concerned about like potential like backlash you know feminist activists have mobilized there and bought the books themselves and that's been like incredible to see that's amazing and uh, the process of getting an agent for the people who you've inspired to take on a project like this themselves was that an easy process or how would you go about getting one for another feminist who wants to put a book out there it's not an easy process it's a hard process um i feel like the whole project of having an idea and getting your book <clears throat> excuse me into bookshelves around the world is challenging to the point where myself and a writer friend francis francis williams francis mensa williams who's the author of books like pasta and pig fruits have decided we want to do a whole writing series around this i don't know if your podcast will come out before our first writing workshop but that's going to be on the 13th of august because we want to really share everything we've learned about you know getting from the stage where you have an idea, the idea I had in like 2014, 2015, till you get to the stage where people can actually hold the book. Um, but in a nutshell, you know, you need to write a book proposal, you need to find agents who have successfully, I think, sold books like the books, the book you're writing or are interested in like a particular field. So for example, my agent is Robert Kasky. And he's sold lots of books written by women specifically about issues that I guess you would say are of interest to women and also sold books about nature, <laughs> you know? Um, but then like when I sent him my, my, my proposal, he got back to me within three days and he was like, you know what? I love it. I can sell it. Whereas there was another agent I had sent my book proposal to who was highly recommended, who I had heard about, you know, had a head up on my agent before I reached out to him. Um, and she got back to me and she was like, sorry, I've heard of you. I know your work, but I don't think I can sell this book. And I remember feeling so, so crushed because I felt like that meant my book couldn't be sold. And then the friend of mine who introduced me to that agent, who actually is somebody who was represented by that agent said, Nana, what she's saying means she can sell the book. It doesn't mean your book can't be sold, right? So I think it's a certain amount of faith you have to have in your work. And it's really about finding that person who believes in your work and believes they can sell it. Because like we know if somebody believes they can do something, chances are they can do it. If someone thinks they can't do it, how are they going to be able to do it? That's such an important point for people because writing is incredibly, requires a, a huge amount of tenacity. You have to keep pushing and you do have to have a lot of faith in your own work and keep sending it out when other people reject it. So I think that lesson in that it's not that it can't be sold, it's that that particular person isn't interested in selling it or isn't able to sell it is so, so valuable. So thank you for sharing that. I am going to hopefully get this out before the 13th, so hopefully people can um, tune in to to your workshop. Um, so, yeah, just congratulations. I'm just so um, proud that the book is out there. And, I, I mean, I have absolutely nothing to do with it and no reason to be proud. But <laughs> I'm so proud to know you and I'm so excited for you. It's just fantastic. Um, Thank you so much, Ed. Yeah. The theme of this um, season's episodes is feminist parenting, and you have a daughter who's almost two and a half. What has it been like being a parent, and how has it informed your feminism, and how has your feminism informed being a parent? It's such a great question. Um, And I think the topic of feminist 
like being a feminist and also being a parent is one I've always been super, super interested in. I've been fascinated by feminist parents for a long time, right? And how they raise their children. Because I think when you're a parent, a feminist, it influences every area of your life. And it should, right? And it should also change how you approach parenting. I feel like in general, you know, more or less standard models of parenting really disempowers children. And for me, the thing that I grapple with as a parent is how do I, how do I like give my child more power? You know, how do I give my child more control? How do I give my child more freedom? How do I, in a sense, preserve what she has naturally within her, right? Her sort of strength of mind, her tenacity. How do I allow her to be? How do I also avoid the mistakes that I feel I experienced? Not because my parents were bad, but because they were doing what they felt was right, right? I feel like parents do, they do what they believe is best for children, right? But also I think when you know better, you do better. How do I do things like not say to her, don't cross your legs? Like right now we are potty training. And so it means like I want her at home running around without her underwear, right? How do I make her comfortable with her body and just understand her, her body to be hers without like trying to be like, oh, no, you can't sit with your legs ajar. And at the same time, you know, I know at some point in time, I don't want her sitting in society with her legs ajar unless like that's something that she's been quite intentional about. So I feel like it's an interesting journey. Um, I'm glad I'm doing it at this age. I'm 44. You know, so one of my friends who had kids quite young said something to me, which until she said it, I didn't realize it was true. She was like, wow, you're so patient. And I can be patient, I think, because I'm the age that I am, because I have a certain amount of financial stability, because I'm able to afford support. I have a living nanny. It makes a huge difference to my experience, my experience of parenting. So it allows me to be like, chill, you know, like I'm not stressed if she's going to make a mess. I can clean it up. I can ask for someone to help me clean it up. We can make the cleanup part of the experience of parenting and also, you know, spending time together. Um, and yeah, like also like just sort of trying to take it day by day, giving myself breaks when I need to. I think at some point in time, I was really trying to be like a super mom and I was finding that exhausting, you know, like my child is a terrible sleeper. I'm so envious of those people whose kids sleep through the night. She's two years and four months, like you mentioned, and she still doesn't sleep through the night. Um, and she's in preschool and there were all of these stages that I thought once you reach that, that would be the problem that would be resolved. Right. And then in the long run, part of how I resolved the problem was, I mean, she's in preschool. I have a living nanny who really doesn't have much to do during the day, you know? And it was like, okay, I am going to give her her own room. Her room is next to her nanny. And once I've put her to bed, she's not my responsibility anymore. When she goes to school, you know, her nanny can catch up on her sleep. Unfortunately, when my daughter was going to school, I couldn't catch up on my sleep. I had to work. So I was sort of taking care of her throughout the night and, you know, tired during the day and was affecting my, my I guess it was affecting my happiness in general. But I also had a lot of guilt, right? I also felt like, oh, I'm not sure I should be doing this. Is this fair to my nanny? And I had to really think about it. And I'm like, actually, it is fair, you know? Um, and and that has been transformational to my experience of parenting. Um, and I think for me as well, being a feminist parent is also about the people who you hire to work with you or to support you, paying them well, like really well, you know? Um, 
and that's something I do and that also allows me to get the support I need without feeling guilty about it because I know I am paying well above the market weight um yeah yeah, because the, I mean, in South Africa as well, many people have live-in nannies or nannies that come in for the day. And it's really political in terms of if you're not paying the person properly, what you're doing is enhancing your labor potential whilst oppressing someone else's. So it's great to hear that that was one of the strategies that you've thought of, because it is something that I think is important for people to consider. You know, if you're able to catch up on your sleep or go to do your job, is the person that you're employing also able to live a comfortable and happy life? Otherwise you're sort of reproducing inequality yourself absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. and i for me like it's very important for all of those parts of my life to be congruent right like mm-hmm. like i mentioned feminism is really about making the world a better place for the least amongst us and so i don't want to at least consciously contribute to a system that exploits other people yeah absolutely I mean, we've talked about sleep. We talked about it on email as well. My little one is also not the greatest sleeper. He's not sleeping through the night yet. He's only six months though. So fingers crossed. I also keep thinking, you know, at seven months, he'll sleep through the night. At eight months, I'm still holding out a hope. So I'm not going to let you crush my dreams just yet. But other than the massive impact of sleep deprivation on physical, mental health, on happiness, on wellness, what has been the most difficult or challenging thing about parenting whilst feminist for you? And what are the survival strategies that you've used? To be honest, personally, the most difficult thing has been the sleep and everything else really, really feels easy, you know? Um, And I think my strategy really has just been to like, just give her space to be and just like enjoy her company because kids, my daughter's funny. She actually says, I'm funny, ha ha ha, you know? (laughs) So just spending time with her is really, really joyful. Um, and for me, you know, the most difficult thing is just carving space to also maintain the parts of my life that I really enjoy, like quality time with my friends and, and just getting like support from people and leaning into my community. She has a really great godfather who is also my best friend and is really, really sort of present in, in both our lives. So for instance, my nanny's going off on her annual leave. And my best friend, like I said, I'll come and stay with you for two weeks so that you have support, you know? And for me, just, and my mom as well, whenever I travel and, you know, recently I've started traveling again for like festivals, conferences, she comes to stay. And so just having like people I can lean on, my mom and my best friend, allows me to still feel like I have a certain control over my life. Because I think the most challenging thing about parenting is feeling like your life is not your own. At least for me, that's was the most challenging thing and like your life now revolves around this little human and I wanted to ensure that I could give my daughter the quality care she needs and at the same time still do things that are for me that I enjoy whether that's going out with friends whether that's traveling whatever I need to do for myself you know and being able to do that without feeling guilty and more importantly feeling that my daughter is still cared for and loved when I'm away. I mean, it's, it was one of the questions that I was going to ask you because I think doing those small things for yourself, small or big things, is so important. Um, it's something that I'm really struggling with. I definitely feel overwhelmed with a sense of duty and having to be there and be present in this strange way that sort of subsumes my other identities at a lot of times. Do you ever experience mom guilt or parent guilt? And 
what do you feel guilty about and what do you think that this mom guilt or parent guilt is actually about in terms of the feminist analysis of it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do feel mom guilt. Um, I feel mom guilt now when I have trips that are a bit long, right? Anything that's longer than five days. I'm like, oh, I'm going away for so long. You know, and then when I come back, I actually see the difference in my daughter. Like when I go away, she doesn't miss me. She never rarely asks of me and I video call her every day. But when I come back, she is super clingy, doesn't want to let me out of her sight. And clearly, you know, I, well, I'm mind reading. I feel like she thinks I'm going to disappear again. Right. And so that's the thing that I feel guilty about. And ironically, I'm also a single mom. Ironically, being a mum has made me desire partnership only because I want somebody else to be there for my daughter in the way that I am. But I also know that I am, I'm filling her life with like people who are constants in her life. So whenever I go away, my mum literally comes to stay and she loves my mum. She's had the same nanny since she was six weeks old, right? Which is when she came into my life because my daughter's also adopted. Um, my, her, her godfather is very present. So I also know it's very important for me to deliberately fill her life with other people so that she's just not reliant on me. Because at the end of the day, I'm also a single parent. Anything could happen to me. Like we live in this world where we've seen so many people just literally pass, right? And so I need for other people to be as invested in her and for her to know that she has like a whole, you know, clan of people and it's not just me. And I think that comes with time. And I feel like the managing the guilt, it's, it's really a practice, like, the whole sleeping thing was just something that just gave me so much guilt. I tried so many routines, like, you know, some nights with me, some nights with the nanny. Da, da, da. Like, I tried all of these options, and then the whole thing was just to stop <laughs> completely. And, and and that's what made the difference. And once I stopped and I knew, like, I was, you know, treating this person fairly and making sure that, you know, she had time to rest during the day as well, then I didn't feel guilty anymore, right? Because I had approached it in a way that I feel like was satisfying my needs as an employer and also satisfying the needs of the person I'm employing. That's so interesting and it's so important, I think you're right, to fill our child's lives with other people who love them so that as much as we are their sole provider, you know, primary provider of love and affection and care, they do have a, a rich life filled with other people and learn to trust other people. I think that's important for relationships as well. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you've written, well, you've compiled sex lives of African women. You write a lot about sex, sex while parenting. How do you find time and energy and what tips can you offer parents who are feeling that their sex <laughs> lives have died with the birth of their child or the arrival of their child in their lives? It's really ironic, right? Because I think with the combination of parenting and the pandemic, you know, I mean, my sex life is in a sense the most inactive it's been which is also ironic because now i have this book out about sex um but I, you know one of the things i'm also accepting is that like there's seasons for different moments in your life right and this is a season where i'm very focused on being a parent i'm still very focused on work and you know i'm not really out as much as i used to be so it reduces my chances of meeting people i am willing to meet people so anybody who's listening to this podcast who wants to holler at me should holler at me <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not even playing um but yeah it is what it is um like literally when my daughter came into my life the person i was i had just started to see broke up with me because they didn't want a child which i completely understand 
um, especially now, parenting is not easy. And so it's hard for me to offer tips, but the tips that I would just offer in general is create space and time for what's important for you. You know, that's something I've always been really good at doing and, and building a deliberate practice of. And so if sex is important to you, I'm one of those people, I literally, I know for a lot of people, this is unromantic, but I literally believe in scheduling things that are important to you because otherwise it just doesn't get done. And for me, there's something very hot and sexy about scheduling like sexy time or time with your partner or time to go on dates, you know? Um, And so that would be my recommendation to parents and people with children who just want to make space and time for intimacy again. And I think once your sleep is improved, (laughs) definitely you have a lot more energy for sex than you do when you feeling strung out and exhausted absolutely um i saw that you have the collection in the feminist parenting from africa and beyond um which and your piece is called there's no one way to be a parent i haven't been able to get a copy of that piece yet but i'd love to know what you wrote about and your thoughts on the diversity of parenting experiences yes i have to say my contribution to that anthology was a rather slightly cheeky one because I saw it and I was like, oh, I absolutely want to write about it. And at that time I wasn't a parent, but what I wanted to write about was my journey to parenting because I've always felt like my own journey to parenting was going to be kind of unconventional, you know? So in that contribution, I actually wrote about um, a miscarriage I experienced, um, breaking up with a partner with whom I was trying to have a child and my plan to like literally adopt so yeah i felt like it was important for us to think of parenting in expansive ways including people's perspectives on parenting as well as the experience and the experiences of parenting so yeah that was my contribution that's so interesting and i think you're so right that there isn't only one way and that there and there's so many various forms of home situations of you know co-parenting single parenting whether you an adoptive parent or biological parent think that the challenges are there (laughs) the challenges and the joys are there both both ways and one of the things that is often striking for first-time parents including myself was just the massive increase in in care work and domestic work that accompanies it and since you're a single parent and you have your nanny how have you navigated this and tried to make space for yourself amidst the chaos to be honest, I am. this is why I keep saying, like, I'm so glad I'm doing this now. At my age of 44, where I have some financial stability, because my solution to everything has really been to get more help, right? Like, literally. And I know I'm speaking from a really privileged position, but that's actually part of my reality. So I don't want people to think that somehow these things are magically happening. You know, I pay someone to walk my dog. I have a cleaner who comes in once a week. I have a living nanny. And that's that's the support I have needed to, in a sense, be able to still have time to work and do work that I enjoy and to have quality time with my daughter and to have time with my friends. You know, um, it's really been to outsource everything that I don't feel like I need to do myself. But I think it's feminist. It is a feminist principle to ask for help, to admit your humility, right, and the needs that you have. It's not feminist to try and like soldier on and do everything by yourself at the expense of your joy. Yeah, I'm definitely not interested in being a superwoman. Definitely not interested (laughs) in that. Totally. I think we need to get rid of those tropes right away. Absolutely. 
So at the end of every episode of Living Well Feminist, I ask my guests three questions. The first is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism and or perhaps in this case, your feminist parenting? The book that inspired me to be a feminist or not so, so much to be a feminist, but to identify as a feminist was Bell Hooks' Ain't I a Woman, which I read when I was 19. I had moved to the UK and she was actually one of the prescribed texts on my cultural studies course. But I read the book and it really helped me understand, you know, myself as somebody who was black, who was African, who was dealing with racism in a particular way, who was dealing with sexism in particular ways. And that just really got me like, oh my God, you know, this makes sense. And then I started reading lots of feminist texts, right? But in terms of a book that has probably unconsciously influenced how I approach parenting as a feminist is Maya Angelou's autobiography. She became a single mom at a really young age. And I think part of what she demonstrated for me was how it was possible to invest a lot of love in your child and still achieve all of your dreams. You know, to still, like, in a sense, incorporate your child into your life, to travel with your child, to have people who care for your child, care for your child, to still thrive, to still be productive, to still be an artist, to be a creative, to still have a sex life, to still be a single woman. You know, I think for me, Maya Angelou showed me, like, really early on that all of these things were possible to do together without necessarily sacrificing your own dreams on the altar of parenthood. That sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to read that next. I think I need that type of inspiration now. Um, the, The next question that I ask everyone is, do you have a quote or some words of wisdom that you live by? If you can do it, if you can do it, if you think you can do it, you probably can. I don't even know who that quote is by, but... I think it may, oh yeah, I can't remember, but it's something that I had a long time ago and really, like for me, it really resonates, right? It also goes back to the point I was making earlier about the agent who was like, they can't sell my book. Like they believed they couldn't sell my book. So they really and truly couldn't sell my book. Whereas my agent was like, I can sell this book and he sold it within three weeks. Wow, that's amazing. And simple and sensible advice as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And finally, what is your advice for other feminists and feminist parents on their journeys to live while feminist? I mean, I think for me in general, it's really important for people to feel like they have congruence in every area of their life, you know, so to be true to themselves, to be true to their values, to figure out for themselves, what does it mean to be a feminist parent? How does this change? How... For example, if I have a partner, how I share caring responsibilities with my partner, how does this influence how I think of community? How can I involve community more in the raising of my child? You know, how can I ensure that the domestic staff who help make my, you know, living more comfortable are fairly paid and compensated? How can I create space and time for myself and my happiness? You know, as my practice of parenting consistent to my values as a feminist and how can I make sure those alignment in all areas of my life? And I feel like it's also an ongoing practice. Um, And also, how can I extend myself grace, you know, for those times when I feel like I don't live up to my own standards? And how can I just continue to like practice and practice and practice? Um, Because I think we get better when we practice. So just to maintain that as an ongoing challenge. 
how can I extend myself grace? I think that's something every feminist listening should ask themselves every day. We're, we're guaranteed to mess up in our lives as feminists and especially as feminist parents. What a fantastic advice. Nana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been so amazing to talk to you. I'm so excited for your success. I can't wait to read your next work. Um, just well done and well done and well done. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jen. This has been an enjoyable conversation. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.